Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You can be seated as we pray. Father, I'm asking that you would continue the mighty work of your Spirit in our midst. That's actually not just my prayer, it's our collective prayer. We are uniting our prayer, asking that you would be shaping us and molding us. Father, I need your shaping and molding. We all do. And especially as it relates to speaking about Christ to others. We want your word to shape us and mold us, and we want to be increasingly shaped by your gospel. So work by your spirit in our midst, even as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The first person to be killed for following Christ was a deacon in the church. His name was Stephen. And the ringleader of that group that stoned Stephen went on to become an apostle in the church. We know him as Paul. Now, Stephen's martyrdom in Jerusalem led to an outbreak of persecution against the many people who were coming to Christ in Jerusalem. And so the Christians had to flee Jerusalem, leaving everything behind just to save their lives. It's kind of like if you remember our missions partner, Reza, from the Middle East. It's a story we heard from him. But listen to what the book of Acts tells us happened as they ran away to other places. This is from Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They spread the word wherever they went, just like Reza's doing. See, Christians talk about Jesus. Christians tell others the message of hope and redemption that is in Jesus. It's simply what Christians do. So persecute us, scatter us, we have to flee, we're still talking about Jesus. Put us in prison, we're still talking about Jesus. Well, if that's what Christians simply do, then why are so many of us paralyzed when it comes to talking about our faith? Why do many of us feel awkward or unnatural talking about Jesus with others? If it's what Christians do, why is it so hard for us? Well, I think some of it has to do with the comfort and ease that we value so much in the West. But I think part of it is because we have failed to allow the Bible to shape how we think about evangelism or about talking about the good news of Jesus with others. 
And as a result, we, we think wrongly about evangelism. And that wrong thinking needs biblical correction. And that's what I hope this message will be for many of us. I think even for some of us, it could be a paradigm-shifting message. I think it could transform how we think and talk about Jesus with others. Now, maybe when I said there's a lot of wrong thinking out there, you thought, well, what kind of wrong thinking is he talking about? So let me just give four errors that I think we, we have in how we think about it, evangelism. It's real briefly at the outset. Evangelism error number one is we are legalists in our evangelism. We're legalists in our evangelism. That's to say, our motivation for sharing the gospel is guilt. Good Christians, don't, good Christians evangelize. Bad Christians don't. So you better do it. And then we turn, because of that, we turn evangelism into some sort of checklist. Check it off and we can feel good about ourselves. I'm a good Christian. Knock on these many doors. Initiate these many conversations. Follow this formula in sharing the gospel. Hand out this many tracts out. Check, 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 check. The guilt subsides. I've completed my checklist. I can feel good about myself. It's the first error. The second error, evangelism error number two, We treat evangelism like a snake hunting its prey. We treat evangelism like a snake hunting its prey. So in our relationships, we lie in the weeds, hoping not to be noticed too much as a Christian, waiting for just the right opportunity when we can jump out and unfold the whole gospel message in a 10-minute conversation. That's number two. Evangelism error number three is summed up in a popular quote that goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. This error, I think, swings kind of in the opposite direction of the last one. We don't want to offend or be perceived as one of those pushly, pushy proselytizers And so, instead of lying in the wait and then striking out, we just stay lying in wait. We never actually talk about Jesus. And we justify it by saying, I'll just let my life doing the talking, do the talking. That's the third error. Evangelism error number four. We overvalue our own importance and undervalue the power of the gospel. Overvalue our own importance, undervalue the power of the gospel. Now, some of us do that consciously. We know that's how we think. Some of us would have good theology. We know it's the gospel as the power, but subtly, that's how we think. We think that someone's going to come to Christ based on our own ingenuity, our own winsome approach. We think that salvation depends on our cleverness and effectiveness. I talked to one pastor once in, in, the, in the southern United States where there, this error is particularly prevalent. And he was talking about another preacher, and he said, well, he just doesn't know how to seal the deal. More people would be coming to Christ if he just knew how to seal the deal. That's exactly what that kind of thinking is. So much rests on my shoulders and my method. Well, I believe our passage this morning will expose all these errors for what they are and replace them with robust biblical approach to talk with a robust 
biblical approach to talking about Jesus with others. So here's, what I, here's my plan for the sermon. I want to begin by taking seven or eight minutes just talking about the heartbeat of God in all of Scripture. Because I think it's understanding the heartbeat of God in all of Scripture is crucial to understanding our passage. But then after that, I'm going to look at verses 2 to 4, how God's heart shapes how we pray. And then I'm going to look at verses 5 to 6, how God's heart shapes how we live and talk. So God's heart in all of Scripture's. How God's heart shapes how we pray. How God's heart shapes how we live and talk. That's our sermon for today. That'll be the path we'll follow for our sermon today. So let's begin with God's heart. The very beginning, many of you know that the Bible begins in a garden with two people, God's people. And they're enjoying God's gracious presence. But then, they rebel against God's good rule, desiring instead to rule themselves, do what they think is best. And that rebellion destroys the perfect harmony and fellowship that, ev- that, that existed before, that everything is tainted. Sin is unleashed upon the whole world. But God does not abandon His creation. While their sin does cut them off from Him, and while they bear the consequences, their consequences of their sin, God makes them a promise in Genesis 3. He promises that through the seed of the woman, one will come who will crush the very head of the serpent. Now the serpent was how the devil, the form the devil took to try and trick Adam and Eve and entice them towards rebelling against God. So at the very beginning, there's a promise. There's hope that one will come and undo this mess. One will come and crush the snake's head. But even after that promise is given in Genesis 3, the world gets very dark. Sin intensifies, and we see it in all its grotesque disgustingness. Each successive generation, we're waiting for that seed, we're waiting for that seed, and yet it turns out that that next generation's wicked just like the one previous. We're waiting for the one who will be born, who will undo the curse. That's why when you read Genesis, there's so many genealogies, because you're going, okay, is this the one, is this the one, is this the one, is this the one? But no, it's not. But then, in Genesis 12, God makes another promise to a man named Abraham. He tells Abraham that he is going to become a great nation, and he tells him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Now that's really important to grasp if you're reading your Old Testament, if you're reading the Bible. The curse, all that came with the fall, is going to be replaced with blessing. A curse that spread to all is going to be replaced by a blessing that comes to all, and it's going to come through Abraham and his nation. So the story of Abraham's nation, Israel, is a story that matters to all nations because through that nation, the snake crusher will come. Through that nation, the cursed will give way to blessing. You see what God's heart is from the very beginning. His heart is to bless all nations. And he's promising to do it through Abraham and his descendants. So then, 
Just look at one of the songs of Israel in Psalm 67. Psalm 67, which is on page 481. Psalm 67. (coughs) Listen to God's heartbeat. This is a song for Israel to sing about what God's done for them. And listen to God's heartbeat in it. 481, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Do you hear the heartbeat? God wants his people singing about how the blessing that's coming to them is ultimately a blessing that's for all the nations. He wants their heartbeat, their song, to be his heartbeat, his song, uh, a desire to see all nations to the ends of the earth, all peoples praising him, being glad and enjoying his goodness. Then fast forward a thousand years and Jesus comes. And we're told in John 3.16, the famous, most famous verse in the Bible, that Jesus comes because God loved the world in a particular way. He so loved it. He loved it so much that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. It's the heartbeat of God. And then Jesus dies for our sins bearing the punishment and the curse we deserved. And he rises up, and in Matthew 28, he gives his disciples and through them all the church this great commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not just your neighbors, not just your friends, not just the people who look like you, all nations. Make disciples of all nations. And then we got to look one other place. Revelation chapter 7. Turn there. It's on page 1032. Revelation chapter 7. Just to kind of summarize the book of Revelation, God's people end up in a garden again, and the serpent, who's a dragon then, is defeated by Jesus, who is the Satan crusher, is the dragon snake crusher. God's people are again in a garden enjoying the goodness of God. But there's something different. It's not just Adam and Eve anymore. So that's where we see in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes 
and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So do you see God's heart from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation? He wants all people restored to a right relationship with Him. He wants everyone to know His blessing. He wants to rescue us, to save us from the blight of this world, from our damning and pervasive sinfulness. All peoples in that garden again, enjoying Him forever. That's God's heart. Now why is that important? Because you can't claim to love something and not desire what they desire. If you love the Blue Jays, you root for the Jays to win, to land that key free agent acquisition, to re-sign that star player because that's what the Jays want. And if that's what the Jays want, that's what you want. If you love the NDP, you want to see them elected. You want to see their agenda advanced because that's what the NDP wants. What they want is what you want. So if we claim to love God, our hearts should reflect His heart. If Christ wept for sinners, should our tears be dry? If God wants sinners to be saved... We should be getting our boots dirty trying to make that happen. That's God's heart. But what do we do with that? What role do we play in seeing sinners reached? And that's where I think Colossians 4, 2-6 answers that question for us. So first, verses 2-4 to tell us how God's heart shapes how we pray. God's heart. If you, if you hear that picture, oh, I want to see people from all over the world knowing how good God is and experiencing His blessing. If that's your heartbeat, because you've tasted that, you've been through the hard times that show what it's like to have God's care, you've been weighed down by your sin, and you know what it's like to be able to say, I'm forgiven. You've been crushed because you know that you don't measure up, and then you can say, but God counts me righteous. You know all this, and you want other people to know that. Well, what do we do about it? First, it should shape, God's heart should shape how we pray. Now, in the Bible, it sets out two categories of people within Christianity and reaching the lost. Senders and goers. That is, people who go and people who send them. We get this with missionaries because we know some go cross-culturally to reach people with the gospel who have never heard. But the rest of us stay here, but we, we send them, right? It's also true with evangelism. Some are called to plant churches, to engage campuses, to reach prisoners. While others bear the unique responsibility in sending them. Paul was one of those who was sent. The Colossians were the senders. And in Colossians, he gives the senders one particular obligation, and that is to pray. The sender's obligation as it relates to the goers, 
that he gives in Colossians is pray. Now, other times he talks about other kinds of support. But here he says pray. So if you're not someone who's in full-time work trying to make the gospel known, which is most of us here, then your job, number one, is to pray for those goers. And verses 2 to 4 tell us the manner of our prayers and the content of our prayers. The manner of our prayers and the content of our prayers. The manner, it says, is threefold. Continuing steadfastly, being watchful, and with thanksgiving. There in verse 2. Continuing steadfastly means that you don't give up. You pray, and you pray, and you pray some more. You know, the Bible never gives any sense that you'll be heard for your lengthy prayers. The Bible never gives any sense that if you have the words, just you you put together a flowery prayer that sounds pretty in public, that you'll be heard because of your impressive prayer. But the Bible consistently says that you will be heard for your steadfast prayer. Keep on praying. It's the first manner of our prayer. And it says being watchful. Being watchful means that we have certain spiritual alertness. We are awake to the deep spiritual realities of the world around us. Alert to the actual spiritual battles going on. We know that the devil prowls around like a lion. We know that the fields are white unto harvest. And those realities drive us to pray. We're watchful. We're steadfast. We're watchful. And we are thankful. One who is watchful is thankful because if you're aware of the spiritual realities, you can see how God is working. And as you see how God is working, you're more and more thankful. So even as you cry out to Him in steadfast, watchful prayer, you have reason, increasing reason to be thankful. So the manner is simple. Steadfast, watchful, thankful. But the surprise here is the content of the prayer. How should God's heart shape how we pray for those who are making the gospel known? Well, we should pray for hearts to be changed. We should pray for ears to hear, for eyes to see. We should pray that dry bones will come alive again. No, Now, all those prayers would be good prayers, but that is not the content of the prayer commanded here. Might be what we expect it to say, but it's not what it says. There are two specific requests here in verses 3 and 4. First, in verse 3, that God would open doors to proclaim the mystery of Christ, or to proclaim the gospel. So that prayer is God give the preacher opportunity to proclaim the gospel. second request in verse 4 is that the message be proclaimed clearly and accurately. So give the preacher opportunity to proclaim the gospel and when he's given the opportunity, help him to make it perfectly clear and accurate. Not make the message clever. Not make it winsome. 
not cater the message to the unique needs of the people and be so perceptive in that. No, just to make the gospel message clear. Because you know what? There's an assumption underlying this request for prayer. And the assumption is that the gospel message is powerful. That the message itself has power to transform people. That's why I don't have to... If if I can just pray that he'd have opportunity to proclaim it, and when he has the opportunity, he'll set it forth plainly, clearly, then, then the change will happen. Because the gospel message is powerful. Our confidence is not in ourselves, in our own clever presentations. Our confidence is in the good news about Jesus because that's the message that has the power to save. An old famous preacher named Charles Spurgeon said, Defend the Bible? I'd sooner defend a lion. Unchain it, and it'll defend itself. when you're praying for the goers before you pray that people's hearts be changed before you pray that the missionary or evangelist be given favor in the eyes of the people before you even pray for key conversions pray this give them opportunities to preach and when they have the opportunities to share the gospel may they make that message clear May they be accurate. And then, keep praying it. And pray it again, steadfastly, over and over. He's just walking in. Pray it for Conrado and our Spanish ministry. Pray it for Utah and our youth ministry. Pray it for Terry and our seniors ministry. Pray it for our Giggles moms with our Young Moms Outreach. Pray for some of our missionaries, like I think of Jeff Smythe, who works on the campuses trying to point kids to Christ. If God's heart is for all peoples to enjoy His goodness eternally, then we must be either the goer or the sender. And if we aren't goers, we are senders. And if we're senders... We must be prayers. And if we are prayers, we must pray for opportunities to make the gospel known, and we must pray that it will be presented accurately. That's how God's heart shapes how we pray. And I've been emphasizing that there's goers and senders biblically because that's clear elsewhere in the Bible, and I think it's important I think it's important because we need to capture the biblical nuance. Often when we speak of evangelism or missions, we say things like, everybody is a missionary, or everybody is an evangelist. Now, I get the spirit behind that. In a certain sense, that's accurate. But we're painting with a broader brush than the Bible paints. And so we lack some of the specificity given to differently to senders than to goers. So just just catch this. When Paul's asking for prayer to himself at the end of verse 4, he talks about how I ought to speak. See that at the end of verse 4? How I ought to speak. But then when he goes and addresses the Colossians, 
who are the senders, look at verse 6 midway through, how you ought to answer. You see that difference? Uh, A great Bible teacher named Dick Lucas gave these categories. He says, the goers do direct evangelism. The senders engage in what he calls responsive evangelism. One is seeking out opportunities for direct evangelism. The other is responding to questions and inquiries in a sort of responsive evangelism. So I'm speaking to us today, like Paul to the Colossians, primarily to us as senders, though I know God is raising up some of you to be goers. But I'm speaking to us today as senders. God's heartbeat for the nations to be saved must beat in our chests as well as we labor in prayer for the goers. But God also wants that heartbeat to affect how we live and talk as senders. He wants it to affect how we live. He wants it to affect how we speak. So first, let's think of how that gospel heart, that heartbeat that all be saved, affect how we live. Well, verse 5 says, we are to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And then it says, we are to make the best use of the time. To walk in wisdom means allowing God's values to shape how we interact. It means that we're living in the way God's instructed us to live. See, that's a lot about what we've been talking about this summer. This series has really been about how to walk wisely. I mean, how how do I interact with the authorities in my life? How do I respond when I'm wronged? How do I interact with everyday people around me? How do I interact particularly with the needy? How do I behave in the workplace? this, This is walk in wisdom kind of stuff. And as we've been going about looking, looking at each of these topics, we've seen as the Scripture teaches them, it keeps going back to the gospel. That the gospel, it's not just a, a checklist. It's not just legalism. Do this and you're okay. You're already okay. God saved you. You're righteous in Jesus. You don't have to do this to be okay. You're doing this because the gospel's transforming you. It's gripping your heart. It's shaping you more and more. And so you're willingly walking in these ways because you get it. And the more the gospel grips your heart, the more you walk in these ways. So we're seeing that the way we walk wisely towards outsiders is because of the gospel shaping our heart. But it also says make the best use of the time. One commentator explained that phrase this way. We're to snap up the time like it's a bargain. I like that picture. I was up at Muskoka Bible Center this summer, and they have once a year, they have a huge book sale where a bunch of their stuff that they haven't been able to move, they put out in a warehouse or in a big, big gym, and they put low prices on it all. And I went through there, and there were some commentators. This is an $80 commentary for $7. I snapped it up. Well, God's saying, we need to be like James at an NBC book sale. Well, I'll take that moment. I'll take that opportunity. I'll snap that up. Man, God, you keep giving me these opportunities. I like to say one of the great things about being a Christian 
is no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, there's no shortage of wonderful, important things to be doing for the gospel. You just need to look around, snap it up. What bargains are around you waiting to be snapped up? Maybe it's a hurting coworker or a grieving neighbor or a visitor to our church or a refugee family. That's how we live our lives, snapping up every opportunity God has given us to walk in His ways with those around us. That's how the gospel heart shapes how we live. And verse 5. But verse 6 talks about how we're to speak. And it says our speech is to be always gracious, seasoned with salt. Or as the New American Standard Bible puts it, it's to, be all, it's to always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. Now on one level, this is saying that the grace of our speech should seize it in a way that makes it warm and welcoming to outsiders. We should be gracious speakers. But the word grace in the New Testament is a loaded word. Because most often it refers to God's grace towards us. It's shorthand for how God has forgiven our rebellion and restored us to his family and transformed our hearts that we desire new things. All that is God's grace. And it's that grace that, to change the metaphor a bit, should pepper our speech. As salt is to our food, so should God's grace be to our speech. You see, all of us talk about what we love. If you know somebody who loves the tragically hip, you don't have to be around them that long to figure out they love it because they talk about it. Maybe not every moment, but it's sprinkled through like salt, enough that anyone who knows them knows they love them. If you know Josh Brake, you know that he loves the Leafs. If you know John Heron, you know that he loves... I'm not even going to say it from the pulpit. (laughs) Because like salt on their food, their speech is sprinkled with it. They talk regularly and earnestly about it. So it should be for Christians with God's grace. We should regularly be speaking about our God and what He's done, the world He's made, the ways He's saved us, the way His grace shapes how we parent, the way we respond to hardship, or even how we view world events. It should shape everything. And the more the gospel actually grips your heart, the more grace will season your speech. The more the gospel actually grips your heart, the more God's grace, what He's done for us, will season your speech. So when you hear that our speech is supposed to be filled with God's grace, we're supposed to be talking about that all the time, it's supposed to season our speech, 
You don't get a guilt complex and go, okay, that's one more thing I've got to do. I've got to figure out how do I talk about this more? What technique can I use to talk about God's grace just a little bit more? That's wrong thinking. No, the gospel needs to grip, grip our hearts increasingly. It's true for everybody in this room. We don't, none of us even begins to grasp the fullness of the gospel realities. Some of us have captured a sliver of that, and that's why we're believers. But the more we understand what God has done, the more that holds sway over our hearts, the more it shapes us into people who just want to talk about it. And so the solution isn't to get your to-do list out and start trying to force yourself into it. The solution is to get the gospel into your heart more and more. What verse 6 is saying, then, is, is, is if you talk like a Christian all the time, you'll be able to talk like a Christian when an outsider asks you about your faith. If you talk like a Christian all the time, then you'll be able to answer the unchristian when they ask you about your faith. You'll be able to talk like a Christian then. You've seen people in the parking lot learning to drive stick, right? <laughs> That's how a lot of us talk about our faith. We don't know how to get in gear. Oh, time to talk to the unbeliever. No, just be who you are. Talk like a Christian all the time. So, as senders, our job is to pray for those who are goers, but we are also supposed to live a certain way, wisely snapping up the opportunities to live out Christ's love. And we're supposed to speak in a certain way, God's grace seasoning our speech. And when we do, what we're doing is responsive of evangelism. As we live and talk that way, the Bible assumes if we live and talk that way, people will ask questions, and they will. So if you've gone the last year, and there's been no opportunities for natural, responsive evangelism, it may be that you're not living and talking like a Christian should live and talk. And I know that's some of us here this morning. So if that's you, the last thing you need this sermon telling you is to go share your faith. The gospel hasn't even gripped your own heart. And now you're supposed to go share it with somebody else. You're going to share some twisted gospel. Now, I'm not saying you have to reach this plateau where you're the perfect Christian who so grasps the gospel and can ornately explain it, and now finally you've reached the level. I'm just talking about if you don't love Jesus enough, if you don't get the gospel enough that you're talking about it sometime, you need to start working on your own heart. And as you do, what's going to happen? You're just going to start talking with others. Well, that's the end of my sermon. Okay, not really. It's the end of my exposition. But I feel like in a sermon like this, I need to give a pra- some, just some practical how-to talking points about how to share your faith with others. I know that's not what the heartbeat of my sermon is, but I feel like, I mean, how often am I preaching on how to talk about Jesus? This is my opportunity. So just two quick things that have been helpful to me. One is a book by Randy Newman called Questioning Evangelism. Randy Newman, Questioning Evangelism. It just teaches you how to ask questions of other people and probe deeply into how they think. 
instead of unfolding, here's what I believe, ask them what they believe and ask probing questions that expose some of what's going on, the, the weakness of their belief system, and it leads to great gospel conversations. And the second thing I want to pass along is something I learned from Angie Briggs, who I think is one of our most effective or gifted evangelists within our church. Here's what she told me, or a group of people. She says, when you meet with somebody, when you meet somebody, we'll be talking about church, because that's something that's important to you, and ask, what's your church background? Pretty innocuous question. Or what's your religious background? And someone will usually give some sort of answer. They might just close it down and curse at you and let it be. But they'll usually give some sort of answer. and Just ask some questions. Be interested in them. Care about them. Ask them questions. So that's the first thing. You ask them questions about their religious background. Second, you pray for them. So start praying for them. Third, a few weeks later, when you see them again, you say, hey, you mentioned, and you say something about their experience. And then you invite them to read the Bible with you. So here are some examples. You mentioned you're Roman Catholic but don't attend Mass very often. Would you be interested in reading the Bible with me? Or the other week you said that your parent, one parent was Muslim, the other one Hindu, and that you really aren't either. I was thinking about that. Would you be interested in learning a bit about Christianity by reading the Bible with me? Or you said you've had some really bad experiences with church. I found that many churches don't line up at all with what the Bible teaches. Would you be interested in reading the Bible with me? I mean, the worst they can say is no. And I think they'll still be your friends. But more often than not, they say yes. That's, there's two handy tips. Randy Newman, Ange Briggs. No extra cost. So then circling back to Colossians, so we don't lose the heartbeat of what's going on here. God's heart is for the nations to be reflected in us. We need to be people who pray for the goers. And we need to be people who live and speak grace. I outlined four common errors at the beginning of the sermon. I said the sermon would correct them. Now, you might have already connected those dots, but I want to close the sermon by making sure you've connected the dots. So this, this really is the end of the sermon, just connecting these dots. Error one was being a legalist in our evangelism, being motivated by guilt to fulfill an evangelistic checklist. And we found in our study that it's almost exactly the opposite. Guilt shouldn't motivate us. The gospel should be shaping how we live and how we talk because it's gripped us. And when it does, there's no need for a checklist. We simply talk like Christians all the time and end up having rich gospel conversations regularly. Air two was the snake hunting its prey. When I, went away, went, when I went away to university, I was part of a church plan. I wanted to reach the University of Chicago with the gospel, but that was my strategy. I knew I wanted to share the gospel with people, and I didn't want to waste my bullets. So I didn't want people to get like tune out the religious guy. So I just not talk about religion almost any of the time, waiting for that one crucial opportunity where I could swoop in and share it all. And then I realized I was being really disingenuine. 
Because there's all sorts of stuff that gets talked about in dorm life that God's grace and his work in this world has shaped how I think. But I would be holding back. And so I said, I'm just going to be who I am. And so I started talking like a Christian all the time. And lo and behold, that's when I started having all sorts of really good gospel conversations in the dorm. And that's exactly what Colossians 4, 5, and 6 is telling us. Live and talk in a way shaped by grace. Talk like a Christian all the time, and those conversations come naturally. Error three was preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I mean, if the gospel, the words of the gospel, the message of the gospel is what's powerful, if that's what saves, I don't need to say, I don't need to pray for Paul that he lived just the right way. No, I just need to pray that he has opportunity and preaches it. Because it has power. So if you're not proclaiming that powerful message, don't be fooled into thinking, my powerful life is going to do it. Yes, your life does point, to, point people to the gospel. It is the book people can read if they're not reading their Bible. But it ultimately doesn't do anything if the powerful gospel, gospel message of salvation in Christ isn't proclaimed. Wordless gospel proclamation is like liquidless drink. It not only makes no sense, it does no good. Error four was that we overvalue our own importance and undervalue the power of the gospel. We think we have to be cool enough or winsome enough or attractional or savvy or we have to lay things out just the right way to convince the person. But these verses show the error of that. Paul didn't ask them to pray that he'd be clever enough to gain an audience. He asked them that he'd have opportunity to unleash the lion. Because the lion does not need our polish. It just needs to be unleashed. The gospel has power. We just need to know it and make it known. And when we do, whether in directive ways like goers or in responsive ways like senders, we'll be like the early church. Everywhere we're scattered, God's message will be proclaimed. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, allow the gospel to grip our hearts increasingly. I think that if there's one thing that's been happening in our church more than any other thing is that the gospel has been gripping our hearts increasingly. Increase that work. Do that work so that your goodness shapes all of our speech, shapes how we live, that we're snapping up opportunities, and shapes how we pray, that we're praying for those who've been sent. Christ's name.